Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? So glad that you're tuning in here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez here, and I just want to say to all of my listeners, thank you. As we're ending, as I'm recording this right now, we're ending 2019. This is podcast 99, so by the end of this year, we'll hit over 100 episodes here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast as we've been studying the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. So I just pray that it's just been a tremendous blessing to you. I have certainly, as I prepared and I've been studying actually the Gospels for the last three years in my personal life, and then as we transition it into here, our, into our ministry and the platform of the podcast, I have grown in my love and appreciation for Jesus and not just understanding you know, the chronological order better historically and putting things in proper context and how Jesus responded and why he did what he did. And those are great. And that's been a big part of our podcast together, but also encountering Jesus personally and sitting there and meditating what it would have been like if I was encountering him the way Peter or one of the disciples or the woman at the well or when the lepers came to him. And you know, my friends, it's important to do that, to put yourself in the context to see what I respond that way or what is the lesson that the Bible's telling me at this moment in my life? What is it that I need to take away when the father's pleading for Jesus to heal his son or when the father's pleading to Jesus to cast the demon out of his son, whatever the case may be, or the woman who's bleeding and she's tried everything. She's put all of her money into finding a solution to heal the bleeding problem. And she reaches out and touches the garment of Jesus. And you think, Lord, do I have that kind of faith? Do I turn to you like they turn to you? And that's something that we hopefully are challenged every time we come together. And so as we now enter this part of the lesson on today's podcast, the institution of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would appreciate, that you'd grow to love more about this institution, about this ordinance of communion that we call uh, when you take it in your home or when you take it at church, that you won't neglect it, that you don't overlook certain things, but every single time we partake of communion, that we appreciate fully the extensiveness of what Christ did for you and for me. And so with that being said, let's now jump to Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 29, Mark chapter 14, 22 through 25, and Luke chapter 22, 18 through 20. Those are the three passages in the Synoptic Gospels that cover the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so what we're going to do on today's podcast is understand the meaning behind it. So let's jump right into Matthew chapter 26, reading verses 26 through 29. It says here now, as they were eating, remember they're still doing the Passover, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Luke chapter 22 verse 19 says, which is given for you, do this in remembrance. The Greek word here is chagaga of me. 
So what he was doing was he was installing a new ordinance for Pascal for communion. Now, if you recall what happened before this, Judas Iscariot left. The Bible says that Satan entered him and Jesus said, go do what you're going to do. So he is not at the table. He is not here to partake of communion, which is important because when you take communion into the early church and even today in the church age, we see very clearly here in this account that we're going to be reading about, and also in 1 Corinthians 11, that non-believers are not to partake of communion. It is not something that we take lightly. No one can just take communion. We have to make sure that even as believers, that we are consecrated, that we are set apart for his work. And so if you are in habitual sin, you are not to partake of communion even. So there are times in Christians' lives where we are not to partake of communion. So this is important in context that Judas is not at the table. The remaining disciples are true followers of Jesus. And so now the oldest traditional meal that Jesus is having with his disciples, remember the lamb is on the table and he is foreshadowing now. He's taking this communion with his disciples. He's changing things up. This was not common, but Christ is able to do this because he is the lamb of God. He's taking the foreshadowing of the Messiah that was giving up his life, right? In order to deliver his people from their sins, just like God delivered the Hebrews from bondage in Egypt. So when you take communion, now the disciples obviously at the time didn't know this as we're reading this, but we clearly know now in the church age that communion not only looks back at the crucifixion, but looks ahead to celebrating this feast with Jesus and his glorious kingdom to come. Now he's gonna tell them that as he's partaking a communion with them here. But that is something that we have to be reminded of, my friends, is every time we take communion, not only are we reflecting back of what he's done for us, but we anticipate having this meal with Jesus once again. So at this point of the meal, this is important because remember I told you there's progressions to the meal. A second cup of wine was poured. This is according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. And the first part known as the Hallel the hymn of praise that's from Psalm 113 and 114 was sung and then a final prayer of thanksgiving. Now, after the blessing, another round of unleavened bread was dipped in and corseth and distributed to the guests for them to eat. And so the Chagaga that I mentioned earlier, it's just a festival offering that was eaten and then the lamb. So when the Bible says here that Jesus took bread, he's taking the unleavened bread that symbolizes the sinlessness of his body. Remember he said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then we're told in verse 27, and Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So this was either the third or the fourth cup of wine. I'm not sure in what I've read about, I didn't really come to an ultimate conclusion, but it's either the third or fourth cup. And here, this term, the blood of the covenant, this is throughout all of the Old Testament. You go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, Ezekiel 34, verses 25 through 31, also Ezekiel 37, verses 26 through 28. 
And so what Jesus does is he alludes to Ezekiel 34 verse 8 when he's talking about this first blood sacrifice that Israel partook with God. And so what Jesus does is he takes all of that, this blood of the covenant, and he introduces communion, which is the new covenant, because Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. He will fulfill all of these blood sacrifices according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. So let's pick things up here in John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38. It says here that Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? So after partaking of communion, you can see here that Peter, he was still troubled by what Jesus had said earlier. And John 13, 33, remember where I'm going, you cannot follow. But that wasn't the only thing that was bothering Peter. Because remember, Jesus had just said that he will not partake, he will not celebrate another Pascal with him until they're united with him in heaven. He just said that in Matthew 26, 29. So in classic Peter fashion, you know, he challenges Jesus as why he couldn't go. And when Jesus says to him, you cannot follow me now, he's saying, Peter, there's so much that you're going to do for my name in the church age. And again, remember, Peter is unaware of any of this stuff. He cannot see the future. But Jesus, who does know the future, he's telling him this. And when Peter responds back and says, but why can't I follow you now? You know, oftentimes people ridicule Peter for this bluntness. But I, I, I again, I go back to the personality of Peter and his openness and his rawness. He's displaying a deep love and emotion for Jesus in this exchange. And he's utterly convinced at this time that he will go wherever Jesus goes and he'll do whatever Jesus tells him to do. I mean, if you look at your life, I look at my life, how many times do we promise God that we're not going to do that sin again or that we're going to sell everything and go serve him or Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. And we make these promises, but at the time we, we felt like we meant it, but then we go out and we blow it. We break another promise. Well, Peter is a human being just like us. He's devoted to Jesus. That's what I think this whole exchange shows. There wasn't really this deception in his heart like Judas. There was just, you know, this ignorance. There's a level of Peter's naivety that he didn't know a whole lot. And he's going he's gonna to mature. He's going to develop. And that's been one of the beautiful things that we have encountered as we've been studying the Gospels of seeing how Peter has grown. And we certainly see, even as he writes 1 Peter, how he has developed, not just as an apostle, but as a man of God. And so now we see in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 33, Jesus says, you are those who have stayed. What he's saying now is he's transitioning and focusing from Peter to the disciples. He says, you guys have remained permanently in association with me in my trials. Verse 29, and I assign, in the Greek, I've designated authority I have given you rule to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What he's saying is that he's going to one day restore the 12 tribes of Israel. And what he's going to do is he's going to place each disciple except for Judas Iscariot over them. 
Now, remember, this isn't the first time that Jesus had mentioned this to the disciples. In Matthew 19, verse 28, he said to them, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So here you see that Jesus is reinforcing this truth once again. This is pivotal because he's going to be betrayed and they're going to abandon ship, basically. Not like in terms of rejecting him as the Messiah, but they're going to be so emotionally scarred and they're going to be so shocked and they're going to be flooded with doubt, you know, from levels that we see with Thomas to when the women see Jesus and they go to the disciples and they don't believe their account. And then Peter and John run to the empty tomb and John believes when he sees the empty tomb and the garments folded at the edge of the tomb side. And Peter doesn't. He's contemplating these things as he walks away and on and on and on we go. So he's saying these things to reinforce truth, to help embolden them. But then notice how Jesus transitions his focus back on Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That word here, sift, is an agricultural term referring to the process of separating the kernels of grain from the chaff. And when he says you, it's Greek in plural. So he's referring to the disciples. He's saying he wants to attack Peter. Again, he, Peter's been like the leader. And he wants to separate you guys like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter responds here in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So here we see in this beautiful passage, this personal encountership at the Lord's Supper that Jesus is talking about, one, the tactics of Satan. He's talking about Satan's mission is to disrupt, to divide the work that Jesus is doing among the disciples and the work he's going to do as they become apostles. But notice it says, I have prayed for you. Here we see that Jesus intercedes on behalf of Peter to the Father, on behalf of the disciples to the Father, just like we're told in Scripture, my friends, in Romans chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 7, that Jesus makes intercession for you and for me. And so Peter's response to all of this is, Lord, I will do whatever it takes. If it means going to prison, if it means dying to be with you, I will do it. Now we know that at the time that he's saying it, he doesn't really fully grasp everything. And so sometimes we can belittle him or bash Peter. And I want to avoid that because again, as I was saying earlier, we do it in our own lives. And sometimes we mean well, we are, we are excited, we do get passionate, but think about how many broken promises that we have made to God. And yet in his mercy and in his grace and in his intercession, you know, we are restored again, just like Peter. You know, one commentary writes, the Greek text makes it plain that Jesus made supplication in order that Peter's faith should not fail. This supplication made in the strength of the works our Lord was about to perform on the cross. Clearly, the Father honors that supplication and did so in Peter's case as three decades of subsequent dedicated service vindicate, end quote. And finally, we see here in Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 33, then Jesus said to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So this is interesting because if we just looked at Luke's account, 
it just seems like Jesus was just referring to him about his abandonment of Jesus, that he was going to disappoint Jesus, that he was going to let Jesus down, that Satan was after Peter. But when you look at Matthew's account, he's emphasizing that it was to all the disciples, not just to Peter. And then we're told in verse 32, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So now he's talking about his resurrection. And then Peter responds again, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You know, it's so funny when you see this progression in this conversation during the Passover meal, because remember earlier in the night, they were disputing about who the greatest is. And then Jesus washes their feet. And then Jesus says, someone here is going to betray me. And they all start pointing fingers about who is more likely to betray Jesus than the other. And then Jesus tells Peter to the rest of the disciples that Satan is among trying to sift you guys. He's trying to divide. He's trying to separate you guys. He's trying to prevent you to be the disciples that I've called you to be. And then now Peter responds to all of this and says, hey, Lord, we don't know who's going to betray you. More likely it's going to be one of them, not me. But he also goes to the point of saying, even if they all leave you and abandon you completely, I would never fall away. I would never do that. So Peter's comments, they've intensified throughout the night. And I believe in the midst of all this, he truly meant every word. The problem is, again, like our lives sometimes, we don't have the faith. We don't have the courage. We don't have the devotion to back it up. We haven't been fully tested. This was going to lead to the crucifixion and shortly thereafter the resurrection. And it would not be until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where we see this boldness finally come from Peter. He's without fear. We're told he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he lays it all down for Christ. He can care less what people think about him. Matter of fact, he's in front of the audience of people that had Jesus crucified. He was in front of people who rejected that Jesus was the Messiah, and he boldly proclaims the gospel in Acts chapter 2. Now in John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So no doubt the disciples, they were all troubled when they were hearing their fearless leader talking about them denying their master. But later, this would be prophetic words of Jesus, and he would cut to the heart of Peter after he does that early morning the next day, denying his master when he was in the courtyard. But once again, Peter has to respond and say something. He will not let this go unchecked. And he says in Matthew 26, verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny. In the Greek is I will not disown. I will not repudiate you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Now, I think it's important to mention that in the Greek text, because the the English doesn't do justice here, this is a very emotional interaction between Peter and Jesus. It's extremely intense. Peter is very hurt. The disciples are very offended by what's happening. People are very defensive to one another. And this explains why Peter is very over the top in his expressions. But it also points to the overestimation of where the current commitment of the disciples were with Jesus. And I think this is important to mention because we oftentimes look at the emotion that takes place at the crucifixion and afterwards, but you have to understand the upper room, how emotionally draining this was for the disciples when they left the upper room. And then we're told in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 38, and he said to his disciples, when I sent you out, 
with no money bag or knapsack or sandals. Did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now on the face of it, this is a very confusing portion, but let me just unpack it if I can. First and foremost, that phrase, it is enough. He just says enough of this talk. So Jesus is ending the conversation kind of abruptly. So it kind of seems rude in the English, but it isn't in context. But what Jesus is doing here is he's posing a question to remind his disciples that they never lacked anything while serving with him. If you go back to Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 17, when he sends them out, you see how God miraculously took care of them. Now, what Jesus does is he ends that conversation because the main focus is not about the material. The main focus now that we're going to see in the next podcast in John 14 through 16 is the work of the Holy Spirit to come. And that is going to change not only the perspective that the disciples are going to have, but all of these promises they're making, they're not going to be able to fulfill them in complete obedience without the work of the Holy Spirit, without the empowerment, without the filling of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so we'll get into all that on our next episode. But before I end this episode, I do want to just remind all of our listeners that we're not able to produce this podcast and send it all around the world without your prayers and also without your financial support. And so if you're listening to this podcast, if this podcast has been a blessing to you, if you look forward to studying the Word of God with me, will you prayerfully consider giving a one-time gift. It doesn't matter what size the gift is, or if you want to become a monthly contributor to Stand Strong Ministries, it would mean so much to me to know that you are financially giving so that the Word of God can continue to impact the lives of people all over the world. You can go to standstrongministries.org forward slash donate. If you go to the homepage on our website, you'll see on the right-hand corner a button there that says donate. Click there. You can drop us a check or you can sign up and give online secure. And every donation that you give is tax deductible. So prayerfully consider supporting this work. My friends, I just want you guys to know I love you guys so much. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.